So uh, last week we started this series on our build up to Christmas. And uh, Thanksgiving is always, I, I kind of hate how Thanksgiving sort of gets lost to Christmas these days because I love Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is about family, food, football, and naps. And those are like four of my favorite things. So uh, I, I, ever since I was a kid, I just love Thanksgiving because I just feel like everyone's, except for the people that do the cooking, everyone is just sort of relaxed and chilled out. And, uh, and then we just get to enjoy time together. And, uh, and it's one of the things I love most. Meg's family was in town for a couple of days, and we just had some really sweet time together. We didn't do anything real big or flashy. We just were together, and it's a neat time. Uh, and so we didn't want to have this Christmas series that sort of lost out on the joy of being able to stop and be thankful for everything God has given us, even the hard things. So last week we talked about Abraham's life. We talked about this promise. Uh, this, this series that we're in is called A Promise Given, A Promise Fulfilled. See, Christmas is all about Jesus. And the, the, the old... The old adage is Jesus is the reason for the season, and that's true. That is true, but those kind of sayings can get lost. Their meaning can get lost and just are either we're, we're militant about it or we just say them and not really know what the depth behind those things are. But Jesus is indeed the only reason we have this holiday. I know it's been commandeered with a whole lot of different symbols, but but Jesus is the only reason we have Christmas. And it, it's rooted the whole way back in the garden it, when God speaks life into existence and He sets this, this, this pattern up and this pathway to Him where they're, they're, just, they're just walking with God in the garden. And we chose sin. And sin and a holy God can't be in the same place. So last week we looked at how... how uh, we broke God's requirements. We broke God's uh, laws. We broke, God that, we broke God's heart. And the penalty was this eternal separation from God. Now, that might sound cruel. I think God gets a bad rap because we have a poor understanding of, this, of, of what's happened here. God is a holy God, and He cannot reside in the same place as sin. Now, we chose sin and a holy God, if He's going to be true to His Word, if He's going to be a God of character and a God of integrity, then that same God cannot go back on His Word. And if He said He cannot reside in the same place as the ugliness of sin, then He's going to hold true to His Word. Now, to me, I think that's good news. That's someone worth following. That's an entity worth committing your life to. So God can't reside in the same place with the ugliness of sin. So it was really human beings' disobedience that really damned ourselves. It, it, it was our choices. But God, through His, through His just consistency, He has always been who He's always said He is. And over time, He won people's hearts. And see, like the moment Adam and Eve sinned, they regretted it. And I don't want us to lose sight of that. The moment they sinned, they regretted it. If, if choosing sin was so good and so fulfilling and so worth it, then why would they regret it like the second that they did it? Why would they automatically feel shame? Why would they automatically feel like they had to hide? 
And I think it's because they had something amazing with God and they knew they lost it. Sin's never better than God. And God consistently stood beside His people and He gave pathways back to Him. He gave promises. He proved over the years that He should and can be trusted. He always keeps His promises. Even whenever they don't seem like they're for our good, He keeps His promises. So in our rebellion, God still chose to provide us with this clear pathway back to Him. He made this promise to Abraham in Genesis 15. That's what we looked at last week. And he promised to give Abraham a descendant and that through his family line, the Messiah would come. The Messiah, the Savior, the one who would reconcile this mess that God would send him. Now, we could take hours upon hours upon hours and do an Old Testament survey this morning, but we don't have that kind of time. I mean, I guess we kind of do, but you'd eventually just tune me out and head out the door, I think. Plus, I don't know if we have to do that to the extent in this place. I think what we have to do here is we have to, we have to talk about truth and let truth, let the Holy Spirit work in your heart and in your life so that you, it produces in you a hunger for God's truth. And then the body comes around each other. And that's why we do things like women's ministry and men's ministry. That's why we do community groups. That's why we really want to see accountability groups happen outside of those men's and women's ministries. Because the Sunday morning experience isn't supposed to give you enough sustenance to carry you through your week. It's just supposed to make you hungry for more. That's what we're doing here today. So I'm not going to answer all the questions. I don't think that's what this time is for. This time is for worship. It's for prayer. It's for, it's for giving back to God, and it's for receiving His Word. And that should produce in us a hunger. The hunger should make us strive to get fed somewhere. And that's what we're doing here today. So let's just real quick talk about what happened last week. In Genesis 15, if you want to turn there, you can. I believe in the Bible in front of you, it's around page 6 maybe page three. It's somewhere right at the beginning because it's Genesis. Uh, But I forgot to write down that page number. But I think it's six. If I'm wrong, someone can correct me. But I believe that's where it's at. Genesis chapter 15, God makes this promise to Abraham. And this promise is that I will give you a descendant. Look up at the sky, Abraham, and look at the stars and count them if you can. And your descendants will outnumber the stars in the sky. He says, he's saying this to a very old man who doesn't have any kids. Now, he had made the promise to him once before. So Abraham can'ts back in Genesis 15. How am I supposed to have kids? What are you going to bless me with, basically? How are you going to do this, Abraham says. This isn't a lack of faith question for Abraham. This is just genuine inquisitiveness. He just wants to know, how are you going to do it? And God says, I'm going to give you an heir, and then out of that heir will come the line that will produce the line that the Savior, the Messiah, will come from. And then there's this weird interaction in there that could be weird to us. We looked at it a little bit last week. I want to look at it again just real quick. There's this interaction where animals are, he's told to go get certain animals, take these animals, cut them in half, and then lay them down across from each other. 
And, and, and what we talked about last week was how that was a covenant promise, that if, if you were to make a deal with someone in the Old Testament times, that's how you would know. And you would set these things down and you would walk in between them like this. You and the person you're making a covenant with. And you were saying that if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, may my fate be the same as these animals. So there weren't legal binding contracts. There weren't lawyers and attorneys that got involved in, in processes like that. There was just people holding to their word. And the, they, they wanted to make a very serious commitment. So they would say, they would walk through both of them. And they would say, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain then may my fate be the same as these animals. That's pretty serious, right? Now, the crazy thing that happens in Genesis 15 is that God walks between the animals and Abraham doesn't. And he's tell, God is saying in that moment that even if I have to die to uphold this promise, even if I have to pay the penalty for you not holding up your end of the bargain and your family line not holding up your end of the bargain, I let my fate be the same as these animals if I don't come through with what I said I was going to do. And if you know the end of the story, he does. God himself in the form of his son dies a, a horrible death on the cross for the redemption of our sins. And that same Jesus came from the line of Abraham that was, that was promised that day. It's this beautiful thing. The Christmas story can't make complete sense to us until we wrestle with the promise made to Abraham. Now that promise, what we're going to get into today, that promise is what's carried through the rest of the Old Testament. That's the hope that gets produced that people hold on to. That promise in Genesis 15 is so, in, is so important to our understanding of the rest of the Old Testament. If you don't understand Genesis 15, if you just skip over that and read the rest, the rest of the Old Testament will just seem like stick-in-the-mud rules, uh, God being mean and vengeful, uh, a wrathful God who hates people, uh, people always giving bad news, and you'll skip over the Old Testament because you'll say it's either angry God or boring, and then you'll get to the New Testament because that's where the good stuff is. But a proper understanding of Genesis 15 will carry excitement because it's exciting the whole way through God's Word. So this promise that's made is what produces hope. And hope is what's carried through the whole Old Testament. The wisdom books and the prophecy books and before that the law books. All of those things are hinged on a promise. And yes, there are dark moments in the patterns of people we just finished not too long ago a whole series on the book of Judges. People consistently disobey God even though He makes these promises. We know that. We should know that better than anybody because we are sinners. So that covenantal promise is like a game changer in the life of the Old Testament. Now, we're going to skip over some of the things, but I just want to say that from that point forward, there were, there were laws given and there were requirements given, but out of that, there was a sacrificial system made. And for you to have access back to God, for you to have the atonement of your sin, your sin needed to be symbolically laid upon a pure spotless lamb, and that lamb would be sacrificed at the temple on your behalf for your sins. You had to raise the lamb, you had to give the lamb. It was sacrificial on your part. And then the lamb had to lose its life 
for your sin to be atoned for. That's the system that was set up in the Old Testament. Now, if we look at that just from the lens of what we know culture looks like today, we just scratch our heads and say, why were they so weird, right? But let me just turn it on its head and say that if people from the Old Testament saw what we did and how we do it, they would say, why are they so weird, right? So let's not get hung up in those kinds of things. Let's just accept the fact that that's the way life worked back then. That's the stuff that was laid out for God's people then, and this is, that's not what's laid out for us now. But the beauty of that is the reason that they had hope, the reason that they would have even taken God at His word, that they should raise the lamb, that they should sacrifice the lamb, is because they had been given a promise that a Messiah was coming. And God always comes through with His promises. So that's what's carrying the people through up to where we're at today. God will always keep His promises. So we have the promise given, and then we have God come through with His promise. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. It's on page 557 if you're using the Bible in front of you. By the way, if you want a Bible, take that one with you. It's a gift from us. We'd love you to have it. If you know someone who needs a Bible, take it and give it to them. Uh, We would love to see God's Word in as many hands as possible. So take that one with you and consider it a gift. Matthew chapter 1. This is a fascinating thing to look at. It's, it's something that I remember as a kid, I'd kind of make fun of it. Uh, I kind of wouldn't, I didn't understand it. Uh, I, I, used, I used to think there's no way that someone could preach on something like this. But it is, it's, it's a fascinating thing. And I think for us to, to connect all the dots we need to connect from last week to this week, we have to look at Matthew chapter 1. So the promise was that the Messiah would come through the line of Abraham. And at the end of the Old Testament, At the end of the Old Testament, if you have your Bible in front of you, just flip back like a page or two, you're going to get to a a page where it most likely doesn't have anything on it except for three words or two words. It might say the New Testament or it says New Testament, right? But that, that space in between the end of the book of Malachi and the beginning of the letter from Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, it, it represents this little, this little page right here, represents 400 years of God not speaking to His people. Not in a vengeful, I'm not talking to them anymore. But a silencing of the prophets, which we'll get into that in a second. And out of the silence... Out of this 400 years, the only thing that's carrying people through, 400 years of silence, is the hope that this promise is going to be fulfilled. So that's the only thing they're holding on to, is the hope that the promise will be fulfilled. The Messiah will come. The Savior will come. So people are watching and they're waiting and they're praying and they're hoping and some people are losing faith and some people are walking away and saying, if he hasn't done it yet, he's not going to do it. When the silence is broken, look at what breaks it. Starting at verse 1. Now, I'm going to paraphrase some of it just for the sake of time. But follow along with me. We're going to look at the first 16 verses. It's a lot of names, but I want you to follow along with me. Starting at verse 1 in Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here we go. Verse 2. You ready? 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, Judah the father of Perez, Zerah by Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab. We're going to do a quiz later, make sure you remember all these. Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, and by Rahab, Rahab was Boaz's mom, if you remember the story of Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. Now, this is get, it's starting to build. If you were, if you were a, a first century Jew and you were reading this lineage, your jaw would be dropping right now. Because your whole life depended on what line you came from. If they could track back that, that somewhere in your family line was a murderer and a rapist, if they could track that back, that's what you were. You were a murderer. You were a rapist. Now, they're saying right here that Jesus, his lineage can be tracked back not just to Abraham, but to King David. Now, if in your lineage is a king, what does that make you in their mind? It makes you a king, right? Let's keep going. The second part of verse 6, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asaph, Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amos. Amos, the father of Josiah. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, which was a couple centuries, by the way, this, this span covers a couple centuries. And over the, after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel. Shiltiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Ebiud. Ebiud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azor. Azor, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Eliud. Eliud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. If I had a microphone right now, I'd drop it. That is like the ultimate mic drop moment in the life of Scripture. Do you realize what just happened? you realize where we're at here? This is, this is the promise of Abraham coming to fruition right after this is given. Matthew gives this on purpose, by the way. Matthew starts his letter this way on purpose. Because if you're going to break 400 years of silence from God, you better say something of substance to get people's attention. So what he does is he gets people's attention by saying, Jesus came from the line of Abraham. You've been waiting all this time for a Messiah. Here he is. And I can prove it. And then starting at verse 18 in Matthew chapter 1, look at what happens. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Uh, it gives me chills. It's unbelievable news. It is an unbelievable moment in human history. It is the moment in human history. 
400 years of silence gets broken with a mic drop that says, no argument. You can't argue with who Jesus is. You can't argue that he's the Messiah. You can't argue he came from the line because I can show you, I can prove it. You can argue all you want that he might not be the son of God. You can argue it. He's going to prove that wrong. He's going to prove you wrong. You just wait. But you cannot deny that he comes from the line of Abraham. He comes from the line of David. You can't deny it. And for a first century Jew, that would have stopped them in their tracks. So the silence is broken then, not just by the lineage, not just by the proof, not just by the, the, the genealogy, but the silence is broken by the cry of a baby. They were looking for a warrior, and they got one, but he was a baby. The Messiah, the Savior, had been born. Emmanuel, God with us or God amongst us. But for this to make sense, for us to really connect all these dots, I I need to look back one more time. We need to look at, at what this means when we say that God was silent. See, God used to speak through people that were called the prophets. The prophets in the Old Testament were were given words by God. God would physically meet with them or give them words to say. And these men and women became the mouthpiece of God. When God wanted truth to be taught to His people, warnings given to His people, reinforcements of the promise given to His people, this is how God did it at this period of time, through the prophets. And the prophet's jobs were not easy. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet because God told him, I'm going to give you a lot of things that the people of God need to hear. Oh, by the way, no one's ever going to listen to you. So we have Jeremiah's retelling in the prophetic book of Jeremiah, but then we have Lamentations, which was written by Jeremiah as his lament of how he had to walk through that the heart-wrenching walking of speaking truth back to God's people and knowing they were ignoring you with their lifestyle. We have prophets that were, that were maybe in our minds not as substantial as others. We have guys like Amos and Obadiah. We have guys like Habakkuk and Zephaniah. Smaller letters in the Old Testament, but prophets nonetheless. They were given a specific audience, a specific time that God gave them information and they were to give it vocally out to people. And they didn't just verbalize that this stuff was written down and recorded for us to have. But one of the most well-known prophets of the Old Testament era is Isaiah. Isaiah gets called by God in this amazing moment. Let's tell you, let's just look at it. It's on page 391 in your Bible. Uh, Let's go ahead and look at Isaiah chapter 6. So Isaiah would understand the promise. He would have understood who God was. He would have understood that, that, that the Messiah was going to come through the line of Abraham. He understood this. He understood who God was. Now, if you remember some of the names that came from the line of Jesus, you're going to hear two of them right here. Because in chapter 6, starting at verse 1, Isaiah says this, in the year that King Uzziah died, remember that name popping up? Uzziah was a king long after the line, in the line of David, but after David. 
after Uzziah died, which is a big deal, it marks the year that their king died, and he died a horrible death, by the way. He died of leprosy because he denied God. He, he wanted to be prideful. He broke through. The priests were saying, no, you can't. You don't have the authority to put the offering on the altar. And he says, yes, I do. I'm the king. Get out of my way. No one tells the king what to do. You know, nobody backs baby in a corner. And then he, he walks, up to the, walks up to the altar to burn the incense. And the second he does, he gets leprosy on his forehead. And no matter what your title is, if you have leprosy, you're sent to the leper colony. It's a sad story at the end of his life, how his life ends. So it's a big deal when King Uzziah dies. And he says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Just picture what he's describing here. Sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. That's an amazing moment. That's an amazing moment. Isaiah, after looking upon the holiness of God and seeing it, he says, just let me die. I cannot fathom. I cannot live in this. Woe to me. I am a man of unclean lips. I have nothing to say in comparison to what I'm hearing, is what he says. So it's no coincidence that the hot cool gets put on his lips. Because he says, no, you have been cleansed. You have something to say because I'm the one giving you something to say. You're not just going to be able to say things because you're educated. You're not going to be able to just say things because you have an audience. You're not going to be able to just say things because people want to hear what you have to say. You're going to say something of substance because I am the one giving you words to say. He says in this moment. And the voice of the Lord says, Who will I send? Who is going to go for us? And Isaiah says, Here I am. Send me. Quite a different take on what he said just a few moments before, right? When looking upon this holiness, just woe to me, kill me now from a man of unclean lips. I have nothing to say in comparison to what I've heard. No, here, I'm going to touch your lips with this cool. You have something to say because I'm the one giving you the words to say. You will speak for me, and that means you have substance in your words. You have something of substance to say to the world that needs to hear it. And then he says, who will go for me? And instead of saying, I have nothing to say, he says, I'm here, send me. an amazing moment. 
Isaiah is called to remind the people of the promise. The rest of the book is, is some of it a dark retelling of what's going to happen to God's people. Some of it is, is harsh reminders that they're not living out this truth. Some of it is just promises that are added on to the building blocks of the hopeful promise of a Messiah. But his call was to remind them of the promise and to speak hard truth to God's people. If you read through the whole book of Isaiah, like I said, it doesn't sound all positive and fluffy. It's not a self-help book. God uses Isaiah to communicate really hard truth to people. But in another sense, he's also used to remind people of this beautiful promise that God made. And not long after his initial call to this role, he's standing before King Ahaz, who is King Uzziah's grandson. And King Ahaz in this moment, if you flip just one chapter over in chapter 7, King Ahaz has aligned himself with the Syrian king. It's not what God wants. God does not want King Ahaz to align himself with the Syrian king, and yet he does. And so Isaiah speaks something very interesting to him and very hard to him. And in chapter 7, leading up to this, around verse 10 in chapter 7, it says, Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Now there's one other time that God offers this. One other time that God looks at someone and says, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it. And that's to Solomon. And Solomon says, Lord, give me wisdom so that I can govern these amazing people of yours well. And God says, essentially, that's an awesome answer. Not only will I make you more wise than any other human being ever has been, but I will make you also wealthier. I will give you the wealth. I will give you the notoriety and I will give you the wisdom to lead God's people well. Now, God says essentially the exact same thing to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Let it be as deep as the deepest parts of the earth or high as heaven. And Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, the the reason he said that might sound admirable. It might sound honorable. It might sound like he's doing the noble thing. I'm not going to put the Lord God to test. But he's already lined himself up with the wrong side of history. And God says, ask for a sign that I told you the truth. Just ask for one. I'll be glad to give you one. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. Essentially, he's not going to do that because if he does that and God does give the promise, does give the sign, then he's, he has to accept the responsibility, line him up, himself up with the wrong crowd. And this is what's said. This is what God uses Isaiah to say. He said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, verse 14, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, if you read through the rest of the story, that's kind of an odd placement if you're just reading this one story. It's kind of an odd placement as to why that is in there. He goes on to talk about Jesus. Now, at the time, they wouldn't have said, Ahaz wouldn't have heard that and said, oh, he's talking about Jesus. We hear that, we say, oh, he's talking about Jesus. But that's not what Ahaz would have heard. If Ahaz was, was steeped in the promise that came to Abraham, then 
he would have understood what Isaiah was talking about. Isaiah was a mouthpiece of God to say, this is another building block on top of the promise that's already been given, that the Son, the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us, God amongst us, He will come. He will be born of a virgin. Now, that's big information given. He's going to be a baby. He's going to be a baby. His mom will have not ever had any relation with a guy. This is going to be a miraculous conception and a miraculous birth. That's what they're saying. So in all the annals of history after this moment, where people were just looking for a warrior king to come on a white steed and take out the Roman government, they obviously weren't paying attention to the prophecy that Isaiah is giving. He's going to come. He's going to come as a baby. He's going to be born of a virgin. Now, if you go forward again to the book of Matthew, flip back to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Matthew says this, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Sound familiar? Matthew's, Matthew's really good. Matthew's really good because he is, he's speaking to the Jews that might find a way to deny that Jesus is the Messiah, and he's given, a gene, he's given genealogy, DNA evidence, you could say that Jesus is of the line of Abraham, and now they're saying the prophecy, the prophecy that you hold so firmly to, yeah, he meets that one too. Now, we don't have the time this morning to look at the depths of every prophecy made and fulfilled in the life of Jesus, but let me just blow your mind with a statistic. In the Scriptures, there are 353 prophecies given about the life of Jesus. His birth, what He will accomplish, how He will accomplish it, His death, His burial, His resurrection. 353 prophecies made of Jesus in the Bible. How many of them do you think Jesus fulfilled? 353 of them. 353 promises and prophecies made about the life of Jesus and every one of them was fulfilled. So the pro- this, this promise-making God is just reinforcing His pom- promise through the prophets. The prophets' message is just continuously one of faithfulness, is crying out, be faithful. God has been faithful to you. Be faithful to God. The promise has been made. The promise will be kept. That's the cry of the prophet throughout all of the Old Testament. And all of a sudden, 400 years of silence The prophets had been killed, the prophets had been squashed, and the people just wanted to shut them up. They got tired of the call to be faithful. They got tired of the reminders. If God was going to come back and save us, He'd have done it by now. That's the kind of attitude culture has in this moment. So they squashed the prophets, and God says, okay, if that's what you want, that's what I will allow you to have, silence. And so the only thing that people had to hold on to was the promise. For 400 years, nobody reminded them of God's truth in the public circle. God did not speak to the prophets after this moment. What He did do was He just decided to come out of His silence with a fulfillment of the promise. 
And it's an amazing moment. And now, he's working in and through us. He's given us this message, this, this hope that you, you have the promise of eternity afforded to you. Jesus is available to you, to me. That this promise that followed through the ages, through the centuries, is afforded and available to us. So unworthy of it. So undeserving of it. And yet it's still available to us. We, no matter what our choices are, are on level playing field. Sin is disgusting. Sin is, is something that distances us from God. We can label sin whatever we want, but whatever sin we carry into our relationship with God creates distance between us and God that we create. God is immovable. And God, through the, through, the, through the death, burial, and resurrection of His Son that was sent to be the Redeemer, that was sent at Christmas, what we really should be worshiping, what we really should be focused in on, was the fulfillment of this promise. And that's available to us. And if we put our faith in Him, it's not just hope that we're holding on to. We've seen the promise fulfilled in the person of Jesus we get to live in victory because He didn't just save us from sin just to save us from sin. He saved us from sin to put us on a path towards victory. And we go out as His ambassadors, as His adopted sons, rightful heirs to His fortune. And we go out into the world and we storm the gates of hell together. And we give this message of grace and hope and we give it away as often as possible. Why? Because it has completely altered our lives. It has completely changed the way we think, the way we see people. It's not about what we have or what we look like or what we have in our bank accounts. It's all about Jesus. And we're going to leverage whatever God has given us to make sure that people know about Him. That's our call. And we're living in not the hope of being redeemed from sin, that part of the promise has been fulfilled. We're living in the hope that one day God will come back and He will redeem all of it for His good and for His glory. And those who believe that promise and live in that promise and have received that salvation will be with Him in eternity and those that haven't won't. So our goal is to have as many people with us in the with Him as possible. That's our call. If this is what we believe, then we need to do it. It's not about what we know in our heads. It's about what we know in our heads, how it's translated to our hearts, and how we live our lives because of it. It's about holding our hands wide open and saying, God, this is something you've given me, and I'm going to use it to reach people for Christ, whatever that thing is, whatever any of those things are. The prophet's cry was to reorient our hearts around the truth of God keeping His promises, and now we have a great responsibility and really a much easier message to communicate. See, the prophets had to say tough things like, like if you don't repent, then your people are going to be put in exile 
for 70 years under the worst people possible to be exiled under, the Babylonians. And they don't listen. So God, through prophet Jeremiah, says, okay, for 70 years you will be under the Babylonians. You'll, you'll, be, you'll be terrorized. They'll burn your city to the ground and they'll take it. They will pillage you. You will cease to feel like yourself. That's what's going to happen because that's what you chose. And then he says these most beautiful words, Jeremiah 29. But I know the plans I have for you. They're plans to prosper you and plans to give you a hope and a future. You see, God's plan was always to give us a hope and a future. Our plans are usually to screw that up somehow. So it's either us believing that God is who He says He is or us not believing that God is who He says He is. But I just have to say this. If I have to be the voice of the prophet in this place this morning, make your decision and live your life. Don't fake it. It's not worth it. Because it says in the Word of God, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will be with me in paradise. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will be in the kingdom of heaven. People will stand before God and say, but I did great things in your name. And he'll say, away from me. I never knew you. I never knew you. Because you didn't want to know me. You see, when we understand this, and we live in this amazing truth, hopefully it just completely wrecks us. It changes the way we see the world. There's no half-hearted commitment in this. There's no room for it. All I am, my life defined by I am crucified with Christ. The life I live, I live by faith in Jesus Christ who died for me. That's our cry. That's our prayer. That's our promise. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for its eternal nature. Thank you that you give us hope and a future. Thank you that we know how this ends. We know that you will come back. You know that you will redeem us. We know that we will be saved on, a, on an eternal scale. But we also know that, that that has been afforded to us in this moment. So, Lord, I pray that if there are those in this room that don't know you, that don't know where they stand with you, that don't know uh, if, if salvation has come into their, into their lives, I pray that they would talk to somebody today before they leave. God, that the angels would rejoice at people coming to know you in this place today. We thank you and praise you for the opportunity we have to proclaim truth. We thank you and praise you for the truth that has been given to us in timeless nature. And I pray that as we, as we dig in more and more, as we, as we study your word, as we look into it, as we apply it, that you are honored and glorified and what you see. And may our prayer truly be that all I am, my life defined by I am crucified with Christ. The life I live, I live by faith in Jesus Christ who died for me.